Right, good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter five. That's where we're gonna be. Thank you so much, brother. So you guys know I'm a, I'm a pacer, but I tweaked my back a little bit this morning. So we're gonna sit for today. Uh, not trying to be especially poignant with the sitting or it's not like family gathering where I got like heavy stuff to say to you. So I gotta sit down. No, I just uh, need the, the assist today. So we'll see how I can do without my perpetual motion. The camera folks are like, that's awesome. He's not gonna move so much. So Galatians chapter five, we're beginning a new section in the book of Galatians. Uh, we outlined the book for you at the beginning of this series, uh, if you've been tracking along with us. And didn't Russ do an awesome job wrapping up uh, chapter four for us last week and kind of addressing a tough text? Uh, as we're addressing, yeah, let's just all applaud. You can applaud there. You wanted to, and I kept talking. Yeah, so Russ guided us so well in thinking about that allegory of Hagar and Sarah and, and how Paul uses it there. And now we turn our attention into a new section where in chapters three and four, Paul was really making a theological argument and now he wants to apply that into our lives, help us to understand its application in chapters five and six. So let's read Galatians 5, one. We're gonna look at 12 verses today, but I just wanna, let's focus in here. This is a pinnacle text in the book of Galatians. The book doesn't make sense without it. It is, the, everything has kind of been leading up to this text now. So read along with me, you got your Bible or on the screens if you don't. For freedom tries to set us free. Let me say it again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. All right, so important. Let's hear it coming out of our own mouth. So say it with me, would you? All right. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. All right, now I'm not trying to use a little cute tactic there. Hearing it come out of our own mouths is important, yes? Sometimes making sure we hear. Let me just introduce you to a good habit. If you're reading your scriptures and sometimes you're having trouble following, read them out loud. Read them out loud to yourself. I do that on a regular basis. I'll be reading and I'm like, I'm not catching this. Let me just, I need to read it out loud and, and hear it said. Here it's spoken, so don't be afraid to do that in your, in your you know, scripture study alone. So when I was in college, I had the privilege of um, connecting with, ministering to a group of young men uh, who were imprisoned uh, in Texas, where I grew up. They, there's a thing called the Texas Youth Commission, and they have facilities that are detention centers for kids who have committed violent crimes. So they can be anywhere from 13 to 18 years old. If at 18, they haven't they haven't phased, uh, shown good behavior up to a certain point and phased out, then they go to sort of a big boy prison. Uh, it's a pretty scary deal. And so I, I got the privilege of, during college of doing Bible studies with some, mentoring one-on-one, -on -one, doing some of these things. I would do that multiple times a week. And on Tuesday nights, I can tell you, I still have, it's, it's burned in my brain. I can remember, not just in my brain, I can remember the feeling in my heart. Um, I would go on Tuesday nights to uh, the detention center in the town where I went to college, and I remember the feeling, the oppressive, just frightening feeling of walking in and the big heavy metal bars to the jail closing behind me. If you've never had that experience, it is, it makes you shake. And I knew I was leaving in a couple hours. I was gonna go to a Bible study and then I was gonna be gone. And I was gonna go home. I knew I got to go home. I knew no one could keep me there. Uh, but it was a sobering, frightening, oppressive feeling walking in there. I remember I'd have to, as I was walking from my car to the gate, 
I would have to pray, Lord, give me strength, give me wisdom, give me understanding, give me your perseverance, because I've, it's literally a frightening thing to walk into this place. Not because the, the young men, they were great. Uh, it was frightening because of just the, the place. And, you know, as you get to talking to some of these young men, one of the things you find out is that it can be really hard once you get used to that environment, once you get used to being imprisoned, which many of them would be there for years, it's really hard to transition to freedom. And you would think, why would that be hard? Just to get out of prison and go into freedom? That's amazing. Well, I mean, who doesn't want that? And of course, they did want that. But again and again, you'd get in these conversations over Bible study and you would find out, like, yeah, I, I'm not sure how it's gonna go. You know, when I move out of imprisonment, out of this stage now, into freedom. And the thing about that is, now imagine yourself in that setting. Imagine yourself in prison for whatever reason. And then you stand before a judge one day and the judge says, I'm setting you free. You are no longer a prisoner. You are completely and utterly free. He pounds the gavel. He sets you free. And even while I'm gonna check in on you from time to time and kind of see how things are going. Now imagine that at these check-ins, what you came back to report to the judge was that, you know, in spite of the fact that he had declared you free, set you free, you no longer lived in the prison, you had gone to the apartment that you were renting and you had locked yourself in it and you never left. And on top of that, you kept the same schedule that you'd had when you were in prison life. You know, the same very rigid, very structured schedule. And by the way, you only ate the meals that you were served in prison. So you, you just repeated all of that over and over again, instead of going out to the park and, and to work and to enjoying all the freedom that you had, you were, you were living in your freedom like you were still in prison. What do you think the judge might say? Might he say to you, you know, I didn't set you free so that you could live like you were still in prison. I, I didn't, that's not why I set you free. In fact, I set you free so that you could live like you are what, church? Like you're free. That's exactly what Paul is saying here to the Galatians. He says, it is for freedom to live like a free person that Christ has set you free. This verse, verse one, chapter five, verse one, has both an assertion and a command with it. So the assertion is important that you get. The assertion, the thing he's asserting as true is Christ has set you free so that you could live like you're free. That's what he's asserting. And then his command that comes on the backside of that is therefore do not submit any longer to yoke of slavery. Don't keep living, don't keep submitting yourself to a set of rules and regulations that couldn't set you free to begin with. Don't live like they can set you free now. Don't live like they are the key to your freedom. So the question that we're going to ask and try to answer, and really from this week forward in our study of the book of Galatians, Paul is turning a corner from a theological argument. And that theological argument in chapters three and four and a little bit at the end of chapter two was really very simple. And it, you probably noticed the repetition of this argument being made. It was, Christ brings freedom, the law brings slavery. That was the message. Christ brings freedom, the law brings slavery. And now he's turning the corner. The natural reaction of the legalistic heart, the person who says, no, no, the law is necessary for justification. If the law isn't hanging over your head, this set of rules where you have to get right with God by obeying all this, which by the way, is a very common way for people in our day to think. I mean, how many folks do you know? And maybe this is you. And, and maybe I can help you here because I hear from folks who do not believe in Jesus, right? The reason they don't want to become a Christian is because they think they're gonna have to live by a rigid set of rules and follow them. And it's just gonna kill all the joy in life. 
It's gonna take all the fun out of it. Have you heard this argument before? Yes, absolutely. And there's this misperception that being a Christian is about rule following. Now there are commands of God that we love to keep, but what is missing in that mindset is why we keep them and what they're there to accomplish and why they are present for us. Now, friends, let me say that as Paul gives his assertion and his command, and he's, what he's doing is he's responding now in chapter five, verse one and following, the rest of chapter five and the rest of chapter six, really, so the very end, he's responding to that legalistic heart which says, look, if the, if the law is not there as a threat to folks, that they won't be justified unless they keep it, then people are gonna live godless lives. They're gonna live however they want. They're gonna live like their hair's on fire. I mean, they're gonna live these crazy, kind of godless, licentious lives. And Paul's argument is that's absolutely not true. In fact, the key to living a godly life is walking in the freedom that Christ came to give you. Christ can produce a godlier life than any set of rules than the law ever could. That's what he wants to unpack for us. So the question in particular for this week, but really for every week is going forward is going to be, how do I live as the free person that Christ has made me? How do I live like the free, how do we live like the free people that we are in Christ? So that's our question today and we're gonna attempt to answer it and we're gonna be looking at a very similar thought uh, going forward. Now, these 12 verses that we're gonna look at today, I'm gonna take them piece by piece. These 12 verses that we're gonna look at today, we're gonna divide into two sections. If you want to be free, if you wanna live in the freedom that Christ has given you, right? For freedom, Christ has set you free. If you want that, then there are things you need to reject and there are things you need to receive. So very simple outline, would you agree? Things you need to reject, things you need to receive. So the things we need to reject, uh, we're gonna break into two parts, verses seven through 11. I just wanna walk you through the text. So we're gonna, I'm gonna talk about two things you need to reject. And then if there's time, I'm gonna come back to a third that's at the end of our passage. But the majority of our time is gonna be spent on the things we have to receive in order to walk in the freedom that Christ came to give us. How is it that we live like free people rather than like we're still in prison? So let's read Galatians 5, verses two through four then. So we've heard verse one, our pinnacle statement, and then he transitions and he goes to verse two through four and he says this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So listen, after saying he, he made you free, what Paul is gonna do is he's gonna go back and rehearse the same argument that he made all through chapter three and chapter four. It's as if he's saying, I gotta hit it one more time before I move on to some application here for you, before I teach you about how to live in the freedom that Christ came to give you. And so I'm gonna repeat it one more time. If you depend on the works of the law to get right with God, if you think you can earn merit before God with your own good works, your own effort, you are mistaken. And not only that, you are not in Christ. You are not justified. You are severed from Christ, he says here, cut off from him. So let's talk about two things that we have to reject if we're gonna walk in the freedom that he's talking about in verse one. So number one comes from the entire book of Galatians, not just these three verses, two, three, and four. The first is you have to reject a wrong definition of freedom. You have to reject a wrong 
definition of freedom. Now we talked about this early in our series in Galatians, but let me make sure I'm really clear with you. Freedom, as we kind of tend to talk about it today, is often we talk about it as political freedom. We talk about it as maybe, you know, freedom from debt. There's all kinds of ways that we talk about freedom. Sort of philosophically, the most, the most common use of freedom is freedom to be kind of who my desires tell me I want to be. Freedom to, to live out my sense of my own self. That is not how the scriptures talk about freedom. And if you think that that is what freedom is, then I'm just gonna tell you that you're either gonna slide into legalism, thinking you can justify yourself with your works, or you're gonna slide into licentiousness, which is to say, you're going to live a godless life, a life that does not honor or please God. You're gonna go in one of those two directions if you believe in a wrong definition of freedom. Here's the way Paul and all of the scriptures, when they talk about freedom, talk about freedom. To be free is to be free from the law, from having to earn our righteousness, our merit with God. It's to be free from death, which is the penalty for not being perfect. And it is freedom from sin. Now, when I say sin there, I don't mean death. I mean freedom from sin's ability to lead you around day by day and make you do it. There is a freedom that Christ came to give, and it's predominantly the type of freedom Paul's talking about in chapter five and chapter six. You are no longer in your freedom in Christ subject to have sin lead you around by the nose. You are not sentenced to always do what your worst desires and thoughts want you to do. Sin is tempting. It is hard to overcome. It is difficult. But do not believe for one second that you do not have in Christ the freedom from the power of that temptation. You do. It is available to you. We're gonna talk about how. We're gonna talk about how you live that out and how you walk that out. There's a daily challenge in it, but far too often I talk with friends, believers, who have this sense that whatever sin patterns in their life is always going to be there and they'll never have any increasing victory over it. Now, to be sure, we will not be perfect until Christ returns or until he takes us into heaven with him. But that does not mean we will not grow in righteousness and holiness and that we shouldn't expect that. It's a huge part of the Christian life. Would you agree? That we would expect increasing righteousness, that we would expect victory over sin, that we would expect temptation to decrease and holiness to increase. That is part of the Christian life. And let me just say to a younger generation, and it really starts with, I think, mine and down. There's this false notion that authenticity means just admitting our failures over and over and over and over. And as long as I do that, I'm being authentic. And there's something to that. I mean, you know, admitting, look, I'm not perfect is certainly part of authenticity, but you stopped short. Authenticity means celebrating the victories that we have in Christ, as well as the times admitting the times that we fail. I think we, we think authenticity means just always acting like we're never going to get any better. That's not authentic at all because an authentic Christian life is one where we should be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit over sin. Would you agree? So let's be authentic as a church. Let's not pretend like we're perfect or we have it all together. Can we do that? But let's also be authentic in that Jesus actually matters and makes a difference. (laughs) That we change, that we grow and all glory to him for it, not to ourselves. So now listen, that's that's the first thing and it's that definition of freedom. And like I said, the last one, the day-to-day victory over sin, the power and the pleasure of sin, that's what Paul is predominantly dealing with in Galatians 5 and following when he says, you've been set free for the sake of freedom, to be free, to live like a free person. 
The second thing is just these verses, verses two through four, which I said are just a, a recapitulation of chapters three and four. If you want to walk in freedom, you have to reject your own good works as earning you any merit with God. And we just gotta say it one more time in this book. Friends, the second you begin to add anything to the completed work of Jesus on the cross, you have denied the sufficiency of that work. Do you see that? The second you say, yes, I believe he died and I believe I've earned saving merit through that and through that alone, but also my discipline, but also the way that I do this, also my natural giftedness, also anything, whatever you add, the second you do that, you do not have faith and therefore you are not justified before him because you've ceased to believe in the sufficiency of the thing that justified you, revealing that you do not actually have faith. That's so crucial. And I know it's a repeat of chapters three and four, but we, we have to go back to it. He brings us back to it again. Now, the, thing, the argument he makes then in verse three is, not only do you reveal that you don't believe in the sufficiency of Christ's work, you now are sentenced to not just for the Galatians, be circumcised, keep this one part of the law, you're now sentenced to keep the entire law. You have to do it all. You can't just do the one thing. So whatever your one thing is, if you think I can, I can add this to the completed work of Jesus, you know, may, let's just use discipline as an example. Like I'm really good at being spiritually disciplined. You know, I, I'm good at that. Great, I'm wonderful. But the second you start adding that as a, as a thing that makes you earn merit before God, the second you do that, you now are sentenced not just to be disciplined in that way, you have to keep every part of the law. And here's what that means. Follow this with me. It means you must, for every second of every minute of every day, for every year of your life, have a perfect will, have perfect emotions that never waver into anything inappropriate. You must have a perfect mind, set of thoughts. You must never think anything lower than what God is worthy of. You must never think anything inappropriate and you must never commit an action that is anything less than perfect. Can you do that? When we put it that way, I hope the answer is very obvious, no. But that's, what, that's why the law enslaves because it means that's what you're living under for, and it never lets up. There's never a second where that demand is not on you. And it must be done in your own power, in your own strength. You can't rely on anyone else. You can't recruit help. You must do it and you alone at all times, always. Do you see the slavery of that? That's what Paul is saying. You got to keep it all, all the time, always, which is why then the next word is you have been severed. You are severed, cut off from Christ. You do not have him. He's of no advantage to you because you are severed from him because you have not treated his work as sufficient. You have to reject any sense that your good works earn any merit before God. Now, let's, let's talk about the, take you back to something we talked about way early on in our series in Galatians, that let me give you three questions I ask regularly. Because good works, would you agree that good works are good things? It's good and right to do good works. They're expected of a true faith that it would produce good works. But when you put them in the wrong place, then they become a problem. Think about it this way. 
the hair on your head is beautiful, it's well combed, it's well groomed. If I walk into your house and find that same hair from your head on a bar of soap, it's gross. And it freaks me out. That work all right? If you like this one better, the fire in your fireplace is great, the fire in your living room is a problem. Some of you like that one better. I like the hair on the bar of soap thing. You take that hair, you put it in the wrong place and it's, it's no longer a beautiful, wonderful thing, right? In the same way, good works are a beautiful, wonderful thing, but you put them in the wrong place. You put them in the place of trying to justify yourself with them and they are no longer a good thing. They are now a deadly thing, right? So here's three questions I'm learning to ask myself and they seem to help me understand when do my good works, when do they begin to be... Uh, I begin to view them as merit-producing works. How do I know? Because it's subtle, would you agree? It can be very subtle where you're like, of course, I wanna do good works. How do I know when I'm doing them not as a free response to the love that's given to me in Christ Jesus and the faith I have in him? And just, that's my response to his love. It's my response to his grace. How do I know when I begin to treat them like they, they're earning me some merit? Because it can be so subtle and so slight. So three questions I ask, and they're helping me. Maybe they'll help you. The first question is, do I feel God owes me something for the good work that I did? Do I feel like God owes you? So like, God, you owe me material blessing or God, you owe me that relationship or God, you owe me this relationship being fixed or because I, do you see all this good that I'm doing? Does that ever slip into my mind? You owe me because. The second question I ask myself is, do I love Jesus or myself more? as a result of the good work that I did. And this comes to do, often has to do with where does my mind go after I do the good work? So whatever good work I did, whatever way I served or helped someone, it's a good work. Use my spiritual gifts maybe in some way. Does my mind go to being more pleased with myself, more enamored with myself, sort of more impressed with myself? Or does my mind go to being more impressed with Jesus, more enamored with Jesus, more awestruck by Jesus? because he was doing that good work through me. Do you see the distinction? And then the third question I'm learning to ask is, do I love people more or do I feel superior to people because of the good work that I did? Do I love people more or do I feel superior to them? So sometimes I can get in that mindset where I think, you know, I did this and they don't do that. I'm really pretty good. In fact, I'm better than they are. Not, look, none of us are stupid. We don't say that out loud. Maybe you do, and I've just called you stupid. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm presuming, like, we know better than to do that. We know better than to say, I'm better than they are because of all these things I do. But in reality, it enters into our mind sometimes. And we start to feel superior to people who don't have it together. Can I tell you, pastors are the worst about this. Sometimes we come to our people that God has given us to shepherd, and instead of just loving you wherever you are in your spiritual life, and just saying, I just want you to grow from there. Let's keep going. Let's go forward. We act like upset with you that you haven't achieved some degree of spiritual maturity. And then acting upset with you, what are we doing? We're really comparing you to us and saying like, well, I'm way ahead of you. You need to get it together. And like, pastors aren't supposed to be angry at their people. They're just supposed to help you grow. So wherever you are, day one, day 500, let's take Jesus seriously. Let's keep growing in him. So, I mean, I'm, look, we're the, pastors like me. We're the guiltiest of this one. Letting our good works make us feel more superior to others 
rather than actually producing more love for others, which is what they should do. My good work should make me love you more. Your good work should make you love the people in here more. Okay, so are those questions helpful? All right, awesome. You kind of have to say yes if I ask you from up here. Someone's in the back going, no, not at all. Okay, so there's one more thing we have to reject, but it's in verses seven through 11. So just like put a pin there. And if we have time, which we may not, we'll come back to it, okay? But go down to verses five and six and in your notes to the things now that we have to receive. Let me just tell you, there's one thing we have to receive in this text that he's gonna point out, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, but he's gonna give us two specific ways the Holy Spirit works, okay? So read verses five and six with me where we see these words. For, th- for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. But only faith working through love. Now, verse five, when he says, for through the Spirit by faith, and then he goes on to say there's this hope that's produced, right? What he's saying is the opposite of what I just talked about, the opposite of depending on your own merit, your own works to get merit, the opposite of that is what happens when you come into Christ and what happens is you receive the Spirit, which is why Paul is going to argue Christ can produce a greater righteousness, a greater, a more godly life than the works of the law ever could. And that's because the works of the law cannot justify you. Therefore, they cannot bring the spirit into your life, but Christ can. Christ brings the spirit, the living, indwelling spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, into your life. And so learning, he's gonna go on to say in the texts that follow, learning to keep in step with him, learning to bear his fruit. The whole rest of the chapters are gonna be out learning to walk in the spirit. You're gonna be learning how to develop a relationship with the spirit of God who lives and dwells in you. And that's the key to walking in freedom. Now he's gonna give us two things in particular that the spirit does. And because he does them, we can learn to look for them. Now, the two things he's gonna talk about is this, in this text is that the spirit fills us with hope and the spirit fills us with love. And you can't have freedom without either one of those. If you wanna live like a free person, you have to be full of hope. And you have to be full of love. But the good news is you don't have to fill yourself up with them. The Spirit will do it. Now, when I think about the work of the Spirit and how to guide people in this, here's what I wanna encourage you in church family. This becomes very intangible for a lot of us. And it's like, well, how do you get your hands around you know, kind of the work of the, the Spirit? And so sometimes what we do is we, we go to the Scriptures and we get really um, systematic about the work of the Spirit. And that can be helpful, but we get so rigid sometimes that we forget it's a relationship with a living being the third person of the Trinity who's alive and living and, and a person, not a human person, but a divine person, right? And then sometimes we get so loosey-goosey about it. We don't look at scripture enough and <laughs> we just kind of go, oh yeah, we attribute all kinds of things to the spirit. It's like, no, that's not the spirit. The spirit does not do that. He does not bring confusion and chaos. He brings order and peace and joy. So listen, here's the best way I know how to coach you. When, you th- when you're thinking about how to take hold of the work of the Spirit, which is gonna be Paul's argument, if you wanna walk in freedom, you need to take hold of the work of the Spirit. If you wanna take hold of it, then you have to, one, know what the work of the Spirit is, start looking for it, and then yield to it. Is that a pretty simple pathway? Okay, 
Know what it is and what it isn't. Learn to look for it. Like start looking in your daily life for, oh, that's the work of the Spirit. Like, I see that. And then the great news is you can't manufacture the work of the Spirit. You cannot make him do anything that he does not want to do. The Spirit is not a dog that operates on your command. There is no way to force the Spirit to do something or to manufacture the work of the Spirit, which is the sadness sometimes of believers who want to press into saying the Spirit's doing things he's not doing. They're trying to manufacture things that aren't from the Spirit. That's not helpful. Know what he does and what he doesn't. Look for it. Like, actually keep your eyes open day to day. (laughs) And then yield to it. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to make it happen. You yield to it as he does it. And as you yield to it, what happens is you grow in your experience of it. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, awesome. So that's what we want to learn to do. Look for it, keep our eyes open, and then yield to it. So let's talk about those two works of the Spirit. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, really, um, I think. So, yeah, filling, uh, how does he fill us with hope, okay? So the first thing I need you to see is go back to verse five, get your eyes in the text, and look what he says. For through the Spirit, by faith. Now, it's important because he doesn't say by faith through the Spirit. What he says, through the Spirit, by faith. He's saying the Spirit's the one who does whatever's going to come at the end of that sentence. How does the Spirit come to do that? He comes to do it through faith. In other words, what he's saying is the Spirit enters into your life not because you kept the law. The Spirit enters into your life because you have what? Faith. So think of it this way. If you are a tree, the roots are your faith digging deep into the soil and the Spirit then is the life-giving water that those roots of faith bring up and bring throughout every branch of the tree and every leaf. The Spirit is brought up into the tree through faith. That's what he's, that's the picture he's painting. Now he says, okay, so what's the work the Spirit does? Spirit's given for faith. It's pulled up into the tree and into its branches. So what does it then do? And that Spirit, he says, look at the end of verse five. We ourselves, through that Spirit, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The picture he's painting there, Paul is saying what the Spirit's gonna do is he's gonna give you hope, but it's a very specific kind of hope. It's not just a general, generic kind of hope. It's the hope that comes from being transported in your mind and in your heart and in your will to that moment when you will stand before God, almost telescoping you to the end of your life and saying, I'm going to show you, Spirit is saying, I'm going to show you the day that you are gonna stand before the Lord and be declared perfectly righteous because of the blood of Jesus. All his merit imparted to you. Complete perfection and righteousness. Picture that for a moment. What the Spirit does on a daily basis as we yield to him is he takes us up into the heavenlies and he shows us our completed selves. He shows us that that's where your hope is. It's not in anything happening down here. Whatever the circumstances, good that you might rest in contentment in that goodness rather than looking up here or bad so that you would think, all this doesn't matter. All that matters is the pain I feel right now. He's saying, no, no, in any circumstance, I'm going to take your mind, I'm gonna take your heart and I'm gonna put you up into the heavenly places and I'm gonna show you your true hope and it's the righteousness that will be yours. Now it's ours in Christ, but it will be completed perfected. If you want to walk in freedom, if you want to live a free life, you can't do it without hope. 
There is no freedom over sin. There's no conquering sin. There's no putting it to death. There's no daily walking and increasing victory without that hope. Let me say a couple things about that. Number one, don't settle for lesser hopes. Don't settle for lesser hopes. Don't settle for a hope of life circumstances just getting a little bit better. I mean, to, to want that is fine, but don't let that be the hope. The real hope is that day of righteousness that is coming. And if you have that, you can endure. And you can also not be distracted by good circumstances. Here's the beauty of the hope the Holy Spirit has to give. It's the Holy Spirit giving it, which means that it does not depend in any way, shape, or form upon your circumstances. There is no circumstance in which you cannot receive hope. Think about that for a moment. Your most dire circumstance cannot deny you hope. Why? Because the circumstance is not where the hope comes from. The spirit is where the hope comes from. Is the spirit prevented from giving you hope because you're in bad circumstances? No. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't resist the hope he wants to give. Because here's what happens sometimes, is we resist him taking us up and showing us our hope. And we resist it because if we're in trial, one of the things that happens is we think, oh, that's just placating me. That doesn't matter. What matters is right here, right now. And the Holy Spirit's saying, no, what matters, yes, right here, right now matters. And I'm not denying the difficulty of that. But you will endure this difficulty when you see this. This is what matters. And he points us up there. So don't resist going up there because I find that sometimes it, we resist it because we feel like it's, it's just like an opiate for, you know, it's just like, oh, you're just trying to placate me. And that's not what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is giving you what you actually need. He's taking you to your hope. So this is a conversation that, uh, you know, in terms of not resisting, not like yielding to the Spirit, letting our attention be lifted to that place. This is a conversation that happens in our house on a regular basis, and it's adults and kids alike, all right? There's this thought that sometimes we have, yes, I can be held responsible for my actions, like I can control my actions, but I can't control my thoughts. I can't control where my mind goes. And that's not true. There is no circumstance or situation where I do not have the ability to choose to place my thoughts on the right things. That's something we're working with our kids on. Usually it's in the middle of fear, something that, that makes them feel afraid. And because they feel afraid, they think there's no way I can get that. There's no way I can change my thoughts. And one of the things that we say is, no, you, that's not true. Now, it can be challenging. It can be very difficult. But I always have the opportunity to take my mind and set it on things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, excellent, and worthy of praise. Think about these things. Set your mind not on the things that are below, but on the things that are above. Set your gaze there. So friends, I just wanna, let's just, let's just dismiss that misnomer now forever. Like when somebody wrongs me and I'm angry and I want in my mind to rehearse all the ways that I'm gonna get back at them, that feels good, doesn't it? Because you've been there and it's hard to deny yourself that little pleasure. It's hard to deny yourself that little, I, mm, it's kind of good to, kind of feels good to rehearse the, and then I'm going to say this to them, and then da-da-da, and then maybe God will get them, you know? We just kind of think down that road. Friends, don't let your mind keep going down that road, and you're not powerless over that. 
You are not powerless over that. You have the ability to say, no, stop. I will choose. Now, I can't control sometimes that those things do pop into my mind, okay? But what I can do is choose what I will do with them in that moment. When an image that's ungodly appears in my mind, I have a choice to make in that moment. Not after I've chased that image down. Not after I've pondered that image for five, 10 minutes. No, I have a choice to make in the next five seconds. What am I about to do? And I can always pick up your scriptures, go back, set your mind on them, pray, be desperate for Jesus. Does that make sense? So the spirit is always so beautiful. The ho- he's placing our attention on hope. It's what he does. Now, let's go to the next thing. Filling us with love. So the, hope, the spirit fills us with hope. The spirit fills us with love. Go to verse six. Here's what he says. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So you might've thought as he's making this argument, like don't be circumcised because if you're submitting to the law, you're submitting to a yoke of slavery, the law can't free you. This is a really freeing verse because he's saying to those Jews who have been circumcised because it's part of their heritage, he's like, look, it's not that you're cut off from God because you as a Jew got circumcised. It doesn't matter. You just can't put the weight of your justification on that work. So he, he frees them up. He says, circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. Whatever condition you're in, don't worry about it. And then he goes on to say, that doesn't count for anything, but only, and that word only is really important. That's a big word. He doesn't say, this doesn't matter, but these things matter. He says, but only this matters. What is he about to say? But only faith, those roots of the tree, through which the life-giving water of the Spirit comes in, and then the, the Spirit isn't specifically mentioned here, but we can presume it's the Spirit doing it, but only faith working through what, church? Love. But only faith working through love. In other words, those roots of faith bring up the Spirit, the life-giving water of the Spirit, and that Spirit fills us with hope and fills us with love. To be full of love. That's what he's saying. Now, here's as he's acknowledging that, as he's marking that, what he's saying is this. He's saying to be full of love is the mark of true faith. Only faith working through love. Only faith that produces love. That's what matters. If, you, if you're not increasing in love, you do not have faith because true faith produces love. Love for God, love for each other, love for neighbor. And I bet you can know the last one I'm about to say and for your enemy. Jesus is pretty strong about those four places our love was meant to be directed. If we do not, if we are not overwhelmed with an overwhelming kind of love, it is a marker of an insufficient faith. And that's what he's saying. This is the work of the Spirit. It produces this. Now, the law can't produce it. Why can't the law produce it? Because the law makes us stingy. It doesn't make us loving because the law puts us in competition with one another. We're thinking, well, I've got to outdo them. I'm not just going to keep all these. I've got to show how I do better than the other people around me so that I look better than them. That is not a recipe for love. Would you agree? Spiritual competition doesn't produce love and the law just produces spiritual competition. Who can keep the rules better? But in Jesus, we are overwhelmed with love. Now, 
as we said. So the key then is don't resist the spirit as he wants to pour that love into you. And you know what I'm talking about because how many times have you known I need to love that person, but I really don't want to? They've made me angry. They've wronged me. Whatever the challenge is, maybe they're difficult or they've just, maybe they've talked about me behind my back, whatever it is. And yet the spirit is not giving you freedom to not be full of love. At no point does the spirit say, you know, my work is to come and fill you with love, but maybe not towards that person. I mean, if I, I can't speak 100% certainty for the spirit, but I think the spirit might say, when you say, I don't want to love that person, the spirit might say, I don't care. You were loved at your unloveliest. I mean, there's nothing about you that warranted the love of God. Zero. I don't care how much you think you were good. Your good works were as filthy rags. And there was nothing about you that was compelling. I'm, I'm gonna, I just have to love them. That's not true. Therefore, there's no one to whom the Spirit will not direct us in love. It is the work of the Spirit to fill us with love. So don't resist him. So, I mean, here, let's just say very simple things. How do we yield to the Spirit? Pray, ask him for more love. Let's be really simple. Pray, I, I pray, Lord, I wanna be a person who's known for how much love I have. I, I wanna be known as a person who's rich in love. I would love to be known. If someone just thought, who's Trent? And the first words that came out of your mouth was, he loves people. He loves God and he loves people. I, I, can, die, I can die now. That would be enough. Now, the other thing to pray there is pray for the kind of love that doesn't round off the sharp edges of truth. Because, friends, it's not love. Truth and love are never separated, never separated. And so to act like we're loving someone when we round off those sharp edges of truth, and that, that's not love at all. It's actually a subtle form of hate to deny people that, that connection of the truth and love. So pray for that too. Pray for this deeply discerning, really acute, sharp kind of love. But let it be love, not self-righteousness. So Spirit comes in through faith and taking hold of the work of the Spirit is going to be the key throughout the rest of this book for learning how to walk in freedom, how to live a free life. I mean, we want a free life, yes? We don't wanna live in slavery. So if we want that, then we have to learn to yield to the work of the Spirit, to see it and to yield to it. And the first ones we're, gonna, we're focusing on today is his filling us with hope. Don't resist him as he, try, as he brings that about. And he's consistent because he's unchanging, very God of very God, and he does not change. So if, is there any danger of thinking, well, Paul said this is what the Spirit does, but he was writing this in like 30-something, 40-something AD, and now we're thousands of years later, Maybe the Spirit doesn't do that anymore. Is there any danger of that? No, because the Spirit does not change. So the Spirit is doing this. He, he fills with hope and he fills with love. And yielding to that filling is how we walk in freedom. And he's gonna keep unpacking more of that. Now, let me say one more thing about the work of the Spirit. And I already touched on this, but I wanna make sure you understand it. The Spirit is not in the habit of walking into your house in the morning and laying down a set of rules on a piece of paper and saying, all this needs to be accomplished and I'll see you at the end of the day. 
because the Spirit is a divine person. It's not the same as a human person. He's a divine person, a divine being. And as a person, that means he is relational in nature. God is relational in nature. The Spirit is relational in nature. So one of the things that means is we should expect taking hold of the work of the Spirit to be a relational process, to be very dynamic in that sense, that there is an ongoing conversation, an ongoing listening, an ongoing building of affection that happens between myself and the very Spirit of God whom Jesus has sent into the world to purify, unify, reveal truth, empower with gifts, to comfort and convict. All of that is very relationally done. Do you see that? Sometimes we treat the Spirit like, well, okay, he's just, the Spirit's gonna give me this list of do's and don'ts. That's not what the Spirit does. There are certainly commands to be obeyed. But he's gonna, the Spirit, rather than lay down that list of commands and then walk out the door, wakes me up in the morning, grabs my hand and holds it the rest of the day and goes, come on, let's go. And he's with me everywhere. Everywhere he says, I, we're going here, he goes there. He doesn't depart and leave you. So I just want you to learn to expect a relational approach to the Spirit. And one of the beauties, one of the beautiful illustrations is what we do every time we gather here. Think about it this way. I'm always amazed on Sundays when someone comes up to me after a sermon and tells me what they, something they took from it. And I'm like, I, I would have never thought of that. You know, and I'm like, and I yell at them for heresy and then I send them away. I don't do that. How to get no one to talk to you after a sermon. <laughs> no, no, I don't do that, right? I, you come up and you tell me something. I go, oh, wow. But what's happened? See, we've opened God's word and there's, a, there's an abiding truth in it that applies to all of us at all the time, right? And it's unchanging. And it's true for you and me and every other person in here. And it is very much corporately, we are led by the spirit and there is one truth, you know, that we are clinging to. But then there are countless applications of that truth. And that's where I get amazed because the spirit is then taking that truth and he's showing you what you need to do when you leave here. But he's showing you something. At the same time, he's showing you something. He's showing you something. And it's just, everyone's different. It's amazing. It is both the, the individual, personal relationship with the spirit of God at the same time of his resounding teaching of the, the uh, you know, unmitigated truths of scripture that apply to all of us all the time. And both those things come together in this beautiful marriage. That happens every time. Every time we unpack God's word, whether the preacher does a great job or a lousy job, his word doesn't return void. And so it goes forth into us and it, and it works something. It's amazing. So as you think about the work of the spirit and yielding to it, seeing it, looking for it, yielding to it, think about it in a relational dynamic, not just in a list kind of a way. So we're going to wrap up there. The, the last thing to just to mention, you can go back and look at the scriptures because again, the word of God is living in You don't need me. You have the spirit and you have this word, right? So the verses seven through 11, if you go back and read them, he's just saying the other thing to reject is the influence of people who deny the gospel with their works. He's saying they're dangerous. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, he's saying th these legalists that want to, they want to lead you astray don't listen to them. Stop listening to them. So now here's what you can presume. Because someone who denies justification by faith, who denies the gospel, they don't have the spirit of God. Therefore, they will not be full of hope and therefore they will not be full of love because that's what the spirit does. So when you see a lack of hope and you see a lack of love, don't listen to that person. 
That's kind of the short version of verses seven through 11, but you can go dig into that a little deeper. Let's pray together and then let's respond to God's word in song together. Just praising God as a way of yielding to the work of the spirit, shall we? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus. And we've just, man, we're never gonna get tired of saying that. All praise to you, Father, for sending the Son. All praise to you, Son, for coming and accomplishing the work of redemption, reconciling us to the Father. And, And all praise to you, Spirit, for coming now and guiding us in life and in holiness, in righteousness, for the glory of Jesus and the Father. We pray that you would use us more and more. Make us a church of grace, a church where your spirit is yielded to, Father. We long to see you glorified and exalted. So receive this this song. Now we're gonna sing it and we're singing it as a way of responding to you. And may it be a, a really a commitment in our hearts to yield to your work moment by moment. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.